Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right. All right. Let's uh, go on to some unfortunate obituaries here. Starting off with this little one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 5th, 2023. Toby Ann Cohen. January 17, 1940 to July 16, 2023, author unknown. Toby Ann Cohen, a cherished resident of Sherman Oaks for over 70 years, peacefully passed away at the age of 82, surrounded by her beloved husband of six decades, her loving children, and her trusted caregiver, Vicki. Born January 17, 1940 in Cook County, Illinois, Toby relocated with her family to Southern California at a young age. She dedicated her career to teaching and making a lasting impression as a special education teacher, serving the Los Angeles Unified School District for over 15 years. In her leisure time, Toby found great joy in playing word jumble games and indulging in her passions for gardening and pen and ink drawing during her retirement years. Toby leaves behind a legacy of love and memories, survived by her devoted husband, Stanley Cohen, her son, Aaron, her daughter, Felicia, uh, her cherished grandchildren, Chase and Halston, and her brother, Michael. Her family and loved ones will forever miss Toby as her presence touched their hearts deeply. That was Toby Ann Cohen, January 17, 1940 to July 16, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 5th, 2023. Here's another little one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 11, 2023. Stephen Bradford Rosenberg, March 25th, 1943 to August 3rd, 2023, author unknown. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Stephen Bradford, Brad Rosenberg of Los Angeles, California. Brad passed away peacefully on the 3rd of August at his home, surrounded by his family. He had been courageously fighting cancer for the past few years. He is survived by his wife, Nancy, two daughters, Morgan and Nicole, and his son-in-law, Craig. Brad was incredibly generous and influential philanthropist. He cared deeply about his family, his community, and his dogs. Born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, Brad was a proud Angelino who devoted his life to helping others in every way. In lieu of flowers, we ask that you make a donation to Jewish Big Brothers, Big Sisters, or a charity of your choice. There will be a private memorial. That was Stephen Bradford Rosenberg, March 25th, 1943 to August 3rd, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 11th, 2023. All right, here's a couple of other ones here. We got this one here from the uh, Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 6th, 2023, Mark Margolis, 1939 to 2023, actor known for Breaking Bad Scarface, started on stage by Carlos Delera. De Mark Margolis, the actor best known for his performances as former drug kingpin Hector Sal Salamanca in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, as well as Alberto the Shadow in Scarface, has died. He was 83. Margolis died Thursday at, his, at New York City's Mount Sinai Hospital after a short illness, his son Morgan Margolis said in a statement to the Times. 
Born in Philadelphia on November 26, 1939, the actor starred alongside Al Pacino as one of the main antagonists in the Brian De Palma classic Scarface. Margolis received an Emmy nomination for his 2012 for, 2012 for his portrayal of Salamanca in the critically acclaimed TV series Breaking Bad. Margolis studied acting in New York City under Stella Adler, then Lee Strausberg, and Barbara Loden. He got a start in the New York theater scene, appearing in more than 50 off-Broadway productions, including The Golem and Uncle Sam. Even after TV and film success, Margolis would return to theater productions periodically, where he, when he could not live without them. The actor landed his first big movie role in Scarface as Alberto the Shadow, a bodyguard and hitman for Paul Chenard's villainous drug lord Alejandro Sosa. Margolis's film work is noted for his frequent collaboration with Darren Aronofsky, appearing in the director's Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, Pie, Noah, and The Wrestler. Margolis debuted as Salamanca during the second season of Breaking Bad. In the series, his character communicates with others through facial cues and a service bell due to his paralysis. He revisited the role of the vengeful drug impresario in the AMC drama's prequel series, Better Call Saul. Margolis told Observer in 2012 that he modeled Salamanca's distinctive facial movements after his mother-in-law, who had suffered a stroke. She used to do this little chewing motion with her mouth. She'd do that when she, whenever she saw us coming into the room, the actor said. Of getting into the mentality of a drug cartel leader, Margolis said, you don't play villains like they, like they are villains. You play them like you know exactly where they are coming from, which hopefully you do. Margolis has also had reoccurring parts in the spy series The Equalizer and the HBO prison, series, prison drama Oz. Additionally, he guest starred in Gotham, Person of Interest, and American Horror Story Asylum. His final television role was the Showtime series Your Honor alongside Breaking Bad co-star Brian Cranston. He is survived by his wife Jacqueline and son Morgan. That was Mark Margolis, 1939 to 2023, actor known for Breaking Bad Scarface, started on stage by Carlos Delera from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 6, 2023. All right, and now here's this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, August 8, 2023. William Friedkin created 1970s movie classics. Director's French Connection and The Exorcist thrilled both critics and crowds by Christy Karras. William Friedkin, a master of suspense and leading figure of 1970s New Hollywood movement who was known for directing films including The Exorcist and The French Connection, has died. Friedkin died Monday in Los Angeles, his widow Sherry Lansing confirmed to the Los Angeles Times. CAA, which represents Lansing, said Friedkin died at home from heart failure and pneumonia. He was 87. Widely respected as a filmmaker, Friedkin was known for keeping audiences on the edge of their seats with scream-inducing horror classics and fast-moving crime dramas such as The French Connection, the film which starred Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, took home five Oscars in 1972, including acting and directing trophies for Hackman and uh, Friedkin, respectively, as well as Best Picture. Another smash was, with audiences and critics alike, was The Exorcist, which grossed nearly $200 million in 1973, and scored 10 Oscars uh, nominations, including another directing nod for Friedkin. 
and ended up winning two and still maintains a significant cult following today, spurring spin-offs, sequels, and an upcoming reboot trilogy. Despite his successes, Freakin, who had been experiencing heart issues for some time before his death, never aimed to be one of the greats. I, I love the experience of making films, Freakin told the Times in 1989. I love the mud, I love the dirt, I love all the inconveniences. That's why you do it. If you do it because you're looking to be the great American filmmaker, you're liable to experience disappointment. I have never experienced disappointment on any of my films because they all have great memories for me, uh, even some of those that have done less well than others. Freakin began his career, began his entertainment career in the 1950s in the mailroom at Chicago TV station WGN, where he quickly climbed the company ladder. During his first eight years in TV, Freakin directed about 2,000 live shows. He was also known for his documentaries, including the 1962 TV movie The People vs. Paul Crump, which spotlighted a man on death row who Freakin suspected might be innocent. He was, uh, the director finally hit the big screen in the late 1960s. He followed up his first feature, Good Times, starring Sonny and Cher, with projects such as the showbiz comedy The Night They Raided Minsky's and the groundbreaking drama The Boys of the Band, adapted from March Crowley's long-running stage production. But he didn't receive Oscar recognition until 1971's The French Connection, which featured scandalous crimes, a pair of hard-boiled buddy cops, and a famous car chase through the tough streets of New York City. I'm fascinated by criminal behavior, Franken said in a 1985 interview. Discovering what it is that pushes some people over the line, some directors call their agents to find out the uh, grosses, me, I call friends in law enforcement to find the truth behind the crimes. In addition to uh, uh, Academy accolades, the film also scored three Golden Globes, including Best Picture and Director. Freakin would have another fruitful award season two years later with The Exorcist, which made history as the first horror film to clinch a Best Picture Oscar nomination and once held the title for the highest grossing film of all time. He also won a Golden Globe for directing the film. On the set, he knew what he wanted. He would go to any length to get it and was able to let it go if he saw something better happening. Exorcist star Ellen Bernstein said Monday in a statement, he was undoubtedly a genius. William Peter Blatty, who wrote the screenplay for the blockbuster as well as the novel on which it's based, praised Freakin in a 1974 interview for his handling of the story saying he'd never worked with a more conscientious director. And Jason Miller, who played the ill-fated priest who performs the exorcism, credited the director with kick-starting his career by taking a chance on an unknown actor. The eight months I worked with Billy was probably the most productive period of my life, Miller said. He respects actors. He gives them the freedom to build a character. A lot of directors say, walk over here, look at the grass, and pick up the line. Billy lets you create. When it comes to directorial influence, Billy was a titan, both on the screen and behind the scenes for his fellow members of the DGA, Directors Guild of America, President Leslie Linka Gladys said Monday in a statement, adding that Freakin never kept his talent to himself. He served several terms on the Guild's national board and volunteered over the years for myriad DGA seminars, panels, and events. Freakin continued to follow his passion for crime and tortured characters later in his career with projects such as the critically acclaimed 1985 thriller To Live and Die in L.A., 
starring William Peterson and Willem Dafoe. Of all his films, Friedkin was notorious for his focused, often dark directorial vision, which sometimes led to disagreements on set with cast members such as Dafoe. I do get annoyed when you are told to be aggressive or sadistic when the character isn't always required to be, the actor said in 1985, referencing his experience working with Friedkin. I'd suggest a lighter touch, and Billy would say it's inappropriate. And as I watched the film, there were times when I thought it was stronger than I intended to play it, and that kind of made me sick. The conflicted characters were one of Friedkin's, one of the ones Friedkin said he liked best. The director often fielded questions about his seeming affinity for sinister and corrupt personalities. I'm interested in people who live without alternatives, whose backs are to the wall, Friedkin said. What unites all my films is that they all involve people living on the edge of very intense situations that are forcing them into irrational behavior and a kind of last chance reaction to life. I guess it's because I find that situation in my own personal life very often. In 1991, Friedkin married Lansing, the first woman to serve as the head of a major Hollywood studio. They would remain together for 32 years until his death. He, he was previously wed to actor Jeannie Moreau from 1977 to 79 and actor Leslie Ann Down from 1982 to 85 and news anchor Kelly Lang from 1987 to 1990. Friedkin went on to explore moral quandaries and supernatural phenomena, with projects such as Bug, Killer Joe, and another exorcist-centric film, The Devil and Father Amorth. He also returned to his roots in television, picking up a directing Emmy nomination for his 1997 adaptation of Twelve Angry Men. Franken's final feature, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, starring Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Clark, Jake Lacey, Monica Raymond, and Lance Reddick, is slated to premiere at the 2023 Venice Film Festival. Working with William Friedkin was one of the great honors of my career, Sutherland said Monday in a statement. My condolences go to Sherry and his family. After much success on the screen, the director eventually turned his talents to the stage, helming multiple operas, including Wozzeck, Duke Bluebeard's Castle, uh, Ariande of Naxos, N-A-X-O-S, and Richard Strauss's Salome. Friedkin was born in Chicago on August 29, 1935, and raised in a close-knit family. His mother was a nurse, and his father was a merchant seaman and semi-pro ba uh, baseball player. Though he was a star basketball player in high school, Friedkin drifted toward entertainment instead, working at WGN-TV, eventually as a director. He moved to Hollywood in 1965 after winning an award at the San Francisco International Film Festival and directed one of the final episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Hitchcock reportedly admonished him for not wearing a tie to work. There's no reason why I should be a filmmaker, Friedkin told the Times in 2012. I never studied film. I never went to college. I just got into film because at that time, my own interest coincided with that of the general public and the audience, and I was young. I managed to hang on out of equal parts ambition, luck, and the grace of God. Franken is survived by Lansing and two sons, Cedric and Jackson. They intend to hold a private service. That was William Friedkin, 1935-2023, created 1970s movie classics by Christine Karras from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, August 8, 2023.
right, and here's one final one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, Thursday, August 10, 2023. Robbie Robertson, 1943 to 2023, driving force behind the band. As the group's chief songwriter, he turned American folklore into modern myths by Stephen Thomas Erlewine. Robbie Robertson, the driving force behind the pioneering rock and roll group The Band, died Wednesday. He was 80. His death was confirmed by his longtime manager, Jared Levine. In a statement, Levine said that Robertson died in Los Angeles after a long illness. Robbie was surrounded by his family at the time of his death, including his ex-wife Janet, including his wife Janet and his ex-wife Dominique, her partner uh, Nicholas, and his children Alexandra, Sebastian, uh, Delphine, and Delphine's partner Kenny. The statement read. He is also survived by his grandchildren Angelica, Donovan, Dominic, Gabriel, and Serafina. Robertson recently completed his 14th film music project with frequent collaborator Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. In lieu of flowers, the family has asked that, that donations be made to the Six Nations of the Grand River to support a new Woodland Cultural Center. As the band's chief songwriter and grand conceptualist, Robertson turned old American folklore into modern myths an act that gave a timeless quality to such songs as The Weight the, and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. It was as if he had unearthed the songs, not, uh, not written them. Robertson specialized in portraits of bygone figures and institutions, writing odes to Confederate soldiers, blacksmiths, medicine shows, and whistle stops, his tales uh, given weight by energy by the heft of the band. Music from Big Pink and the band, the group's first two albums, arrived at the twilight of the 1960s, helping to shift rock away from the heavy excesses of the psychedelic era and into something rugged and elemental, and ev an evolution that had a seismic effect on the group's peers. Robertson rarely sang in the band, but he was unquestionably its leader, assuming control of the initially egalitarian outfit when his bandmates demonstrated that they had no desire to take that position. He played that role with charismatic ease, a quality showcased in The Last Waltz, Martin Scorsese's documentary about the band's 1976 farewell. Flashing a wide smile and his knack for spinning yarns, Robertson acted as the ringleader in The Last Waltz, widely regarded as one of the greatest concert films ever made. By the time the film was released in 1978, Robertson had parted ways with the band. They later reunited without him, and his uh, bond with Scorsese deepened. Scorsese became Robertson's lifelong collaborator, with the guitar supervising music on the director's films from Raging Bull in 1980 to the upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon. This regular cinematic work allowed Robertson to pursue an idiosyncratic career as a solo recording artist. After a decade's absence from music, he returned in 1987 with a self-titled debut designed to sound at home alongside U2 and Peter Gabriel. Robertson gradually left the mainstream behind in the 1990s as he explored his Native American musical roots and dabbled with electronica. Yet he preserved the band's legacy by supervising deluxe reissues and a documentary 
and by publishing his autobiography, Testimony, in 19 and 2016. Robertson's impact on rock and roll was immense and immediate. George Harrison's later day Later, they worked with the Beatles bore signs of the band's influence, and Eric Clapton wrote in his 2007 memoir, It Stopped Me in My Tracks. Here was a band that was really doing it right, incorporating influences from country music, blues, jazz, and rock, and writing great songs. Decades later, the depth of the band's reach became clear, as the out-country of the 1990s and the Americana of the 21st century all used its music as a blueprint. Born Jimmy Royal Robertson on the Six Nations Reserve outside of Toronto, Ontario, on July 5, 1943, the future musician was the son of Rosemary Dolly Chrysler, who claimed Mohawk and Cayuga as her heritage. Rosemary was married to James Robertson, an army man whom Robbie believed to be his father. But after his parents separated, when Robbie was in his early teens, his mother revealed that his biological father was Alexander David Klegerman, a professional gambler she met while James was stationed in Newfoundland. Robertson was drawn to characters like Klegerman, hucksters who operated on the fringes of society, and he spent some time as a teenager working with traveling carnivals before he felt the pull of rock and roll. He'd been fascinated with music as a child, listening to American radio broadcasts of rock and roll and R&B while learning to play guitar. In his teens, Robertson started gigging with local bands, then formed his own group, first called Thumper and the Trombones, then Robbie and the Robots, as a salute to a central character in the classic 1956 sci-fi film Forbidden Planet. Robertson's next outfit, The Swades, shared a bill with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, and the Arkansas rockabilly singer took a shine to Robertson, while the fledgling guitarist was infatuated with Levon Helm, the drummer of the Hawks. Robertson worked his way into the inner circle of the Hawks, writing a pair of original tunes, Hey Babalu and Someone Like You, for Hawkins. Hawkins was so impressed that he sent Robertson to the Brill Building to choose the rest of the material for what became his 1959 LP, Mr. Dynamo. Robertson became the bassist in the Hawks shortly afterward. His adolescence at times could be a point of contention with club owners who were reluctant to allow underage musicians in their venue. Hawkins had to sweet-talk the proprietors. The teenage Robertson graduated to the lead guitar slot within a matter of months. I was trying to do something with my playing that was like screaming at the sky, he wrote in testimony, developing a taut, penetrating style he sustained through his heyday of the band. As the Hawks toured across North America, they acquired bassist Rick Danko, pianist Richard Manuel, and multi-instrumentalist Garth Hudson, the lineup that would become known as the band later in the 1960s. The Hawks broke away from Ronnie Hawkins in 1964, soon adopting the name Levon and the Hawks. The group played a similar circuit to Hawkins' landing residencies on the Jersey Shore, but they also worked their way into the blues scene of New York City, playing on John Hammond Jr.'s 1965 album, So Many Roads. During this time, Levon and the Hawks recorded three Robertson originals that were released over two 45s on ATCO. Late in the, late in the summer of 1965, Albert Grossman contacted Robertson with the intention of setting up a meeting 
between his client, Bob Dylan, and the Hawks. Originally, Dylan planned to hire Robertson as a guitarist, an offer Robertson rejected, but he did it, but he did sit in on two Dylan concerts, bringing Helm along as the drummer. Encouraged by the shows, Dylan rehearsed with the band as they closed out a Toronto residency, then hired the band for his fall tour of 65. Dylan opened these shows with an acoustic set, then unleashed the loud, electrified hawks on his unprepared audience. Crowds didn't embrace the full-throated roar of the hawks, but they plowed ahead, only without Helm, who decided he didn't want to play to hostile listeners. The rest of the Hawks soldiered on without, with a rotating series of drummers into 1966. That tour's emotional climax arrived at Manchester Free Trade Hall on May 17th when somebody in the audience cried out, Judas, in response to Dylan's rock and roll, a moment that was immortalized on bootlegs and later officially released. Between the U.S. and U.K. tours, Dylan recorded the single Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window with the band then enlisted Robertson for a part of the Nashville sessions for Blonde on Blonde. Dylan's wild years came to a sudden halt on July 29, 1966, when he suffered a neck injury in a motorcycle accident. As he headed up, as he headed to upstate New York to recover, the Hawks were kept on a retainer, with Dylan inviting the group to Woodstock in February 1967. Robertson headed upstate with his new girlfriend, Dominique Boudoir. They'd married that year and subsequently had three children together before divorcing in the mid-1970s. Danco Manuel and Hudson followed in their footsteps, renting a house in West Sargatis, New York, they nicknamed Big Pink. With a primitive recording studio installed in, the basement, in its basement, Big Pink became the creative center for Dylan and the Hawks. The five musicians would hunker down to play old folk blues and country songs, then turn their attention to new tunes intended to be songwriting demos for Dylan. By the end of the summer, Helm returned to the fold, and the group wound up with more than 130 recordings. These homemade casual recordings were not designed for public consumption, yet interest was stoked when Jan Winner published an editorial in Rolling Stone calling for the release helping set the stage for 1969's The Great White Wonder, an illicit collection of basement tape highlights commonly acknowledged as the first rock and roll bootleg. Dylan gradually loosened his ties with the band in early 1968. They supported him at two Woody Guthrie Memorial concerts at Car Carnegie Hall that January, while Albert Grossman, who was now their manager, secured a contract with Capitol Records. Working with producer John Simon, the group recorded music from Big Pink, an album whose pa uh, painterly evocative production contained passing hints of the nervy energy of the Hawks. Music from Big, Plank, Big Pink blended the intimacy of folk with the rollicking ramble of a, of a juke joint, the mood shifting as often as the lead singers. Helm, Danko, and Manuel uh, traded leads, sometimes individual lines over the course of the record, with Robertson singing just one tune, To Kingdom Come, one of his four originals on the 11-track album. Indeed, the entire group had an air of mystery. Their name was intentionally generic. Their photos were not visible on the outer artwork. The group didn't tour nor or do interviews. 
Not long after the album's release, Aretha Franklin and Jackie Day Shannon each cut their own version of the wave, the first step in the song becoming a modern-day standard. The band's cultivated uh, mystery started to lift with The Band, a sequel they swiftly cut at a Who house they leased from Sammy Davis Jr. Leaner and louder than their previous work, the band ran the gamut from delicate plaintive folk, Whispering Pines, to funky rock and roll up on Cripple Creek. Uh, with the night they drove Old Dixie down, a Civil War tale told from the perspective of a Confederate soldier and anchoring the album. Like the weight, Old Dixie was popularized through covers, with Joan Baez having a top 10 hit with it in 1971. Unlike music from the Big Pink, the band bore songwriting credits from Robertson on every track and no lead vocals from the guitarist at all. He did not sing again on, the, on a band album until their last, Islands. The band placed the band squarely within the popularized zeitgeist, earning enough attention to garner them a Time magazine cover in 1970. Robertson tentatively started to pursue projects outside of the group, producing the acclaimed self-titled 1970 debut by singer-songwriter Jesse Winchester, but the band remained his primary focus. Cracks began to develop within the group, starting with, a, with, starting with Stage Fright, a 1970 album recorded with pop wonderkind Todd Rundgren. Robertson enjoyed the experimental energy Rundgren brought to the sessions, but the engineer clashed with other band members, many of whom started a slow slide into substance abuse. With Helm, Danko, and Manuel all experiencing some form of debilitating toxicity, Robertson rallied the group forward through Cahoots, a 1971 album that showed signs of fatigue. Of its 11 songs, only Life as a Carnival, a song Robertson co-wrote with Helmut Danko, became a part of the band's canon. Pulling back from the studio and the road, the band bided their, bided their time for a while. Their New Year's Eve stint at, a New York, at New York's Academy of Music in 1971 became the 1972 double album Rock of Ages. The group stirred back to life in 1973, knocking out an amiable collection of rock and roll oldies calling, called Moondog Matinee and headlining the summer jam at Watkins Glen alongside the Grateful Dead. At the end of the year, the band reunited with Dylan to record Planet Waves, an album they supported with a blockbuster tour in 1974. The closing stint at Inglewood's Forum uh, at Inglewood's Forum was condensed into the double album Before the Flood, released in the summer of 1974. The following year, one less Bob Dylan and the band project emerged when Robertson produced a double LP set of The Basement Tapes, cleaning up the original 1967 recordings with some overdubs and adding a few band outtakes to create the illusion they were equally partners, equal partners to Dylan. The band reconnected with their past in another way. They sought to recreate the clubhouse atmosphere of Big Pink by renting a Malibu ranch called Shangri-La, previously the site where the talking horse sitcom Mr. Ed was filmed, and converting it into a recording studio. Other musician friends spent time at Shangri-La. Eric Clapton cut his 1976 LP No Reason to Cry there, a record that featured all five members of the band, while the band recorded Northern Lights' Southern Cross a 1975 release that was their strongest, most cohesive album since their second record. 
Once Robertson wrapped up his production duties on Neil Diamond's Beautiful Noise, the band launched a supporting tour for Northern Lights, Southern Cross, in the summer of 1976. Things quickly fell apart. Mammals sustained a neck injury and a boating accident, forcing the band to cancel a portion of the tour and prompting Robertson to consider an escape route. He conceived the last waltz, a lavish farewell to the stage to be delivered at the Winterland Ballroom on Thanksgiving Day, 1976. Robertson decided to preserve the event, so he asked Scorsese, fresh off the release of Taxi Driver, to direct a documentary. The pair formed an instant and deep bond evident in the finished film, which portrays Robertson as a movie star in waiting. Within the band, there was discontent about whether the concert closed the curtain on their years as a touring act or on their career overall. Robertson claimed the former, Helm the latter. The drummer proved to be correct. Robertson spent much of 1977 working with Scorsese and post-production on The Last Waltz, dreaming up ideas like shooting on-camera interviews with the group and filming, and filming the band playing on a soundstage. The Last Waltz and its accompanying soundtrack appeared in 1978, helping stoke Robertson's cinematic dreams. He secured a deal with MGM and developed a film based on his teenage experiences with a carnival. During production, Robertson leaped from producer to star, appearing alongside Jodie Foster and Gary Busey in the 1980 film Carney. Robertson didn't prove to be a movie star, but he found space in the film industry, working alongside Scorsese as a music advisor on Raging Bull and The King of Comedy. For the 1985 Hut the Hustler sequel, The Color of Money, Robertson co-wrote the theme song, It's In The Way That You Use It, which Clapton recorded. It was the first time Robertson had a presence on rock radio in a decade. Soon, Robertson launched his solo career, hiring Daniel Lenoy to co-produce his self-titled debut. Robertson next released Storyville, a 1991 album inspired by the sounds and legends of New Orleans. Storyville was the last conventional rock album Robertson would make for a while. Music for the Native Americans found him collaborated with the Red Road Ensemble, a group of Native Americans who helped him trace his heritage. Robertson moved further to into the future with contact from the underworld of Red Boy, an electronica fusion made in collaboration with Marius Devray and Howie B. After its release in 1998, Robertson slowed the pace to, of his solo projects, taking a full 13 years before returning in 2011 with How to Become a Clairvoyant, a semi-autobiographical record sporting cameos by Clapton, Steve Winwood, Tom Morello, and Trent Reznor. His 2019 album, Cinematic, coincided with the appearance of Scorsese's gangster epic The Irishman. The film's quasi-theme song, I Hear You Paint Houses, was the centerpiece of the album. Robertson was credited as executive produ music producer or music supervisor on every Scorsese feature, from 2002's Gangs of New York to Killers of the Flower Moon. He also did other movie work. He supervised the soundtrack to the John Travolta film Phenomenon, helping bring him to get, helping bring, bring together Clapton and producer Babyface for the mellow soul of Change the World, which would take home Grammys for Song of the Year and Record of the Year in 1997. Robertson also worked on Oliver Stone's NFL saga and the Any Given Sunday. 
Robertson spent some time working as an A&R executive at DreamWorks Records in the early 2000s, helping the label sign Nelly Furtado. He also spent a considerable amount of time tending to thoughtful reissues of the band's catalog, shepherding the monumental 2005 box set The Band, A Musical History, several anniversary editions of The Last Waltz, and 50th anniversary editions of their core catalog that offered, a fresh, offered fresh remixes. He also told the story through his 2016 memoir, Testimony, and the 2019 documentary, Once Were Brothers, Robbie, Robbie Robertson and the Band. Robertson sold his music publishing record, rec recorded interests and rights to his name, image, and likeness for a reported $25 million to Iconoclast in 2022. Following the band's induction into the Canadian Hall of Fame in 1989, the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. Robertson received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Academy of Songwriters in 1997. In 2008, he received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He was made an Officer of the Order of Canada in 2011. And that was Robbie Robertson, 1943 to 2023, Driving Force Behind the Band by Stephen Thomas Erlwine from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 10, 2023. And now let's move on to some other news, starting with this one from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 12, 2023. Garland named special counsel in a Hunter Biden inquiry. Federal prosecutor to expand investigation into the president's son as 2024 election nears from the Associated Press. Washington. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced Friday that he had appointed a special counsel in the Hunter Biden inquiry, deepening the investigation of the president's son ahead of the 2024 election. Garland said he was naming David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who has been looking into the financial uh, business dealing, financial and business dealings of President Biden's son as the special counsel. The appointment comes as Hunter the appointment comes as plea deal talks in Hunter Biden's case have hit an impasse. Garland noted the extraordinary circumstances in making the announcement at the Justice Department. The Attorney General said that Weiss had asked to be appointed to the position and had told him that in his judgment, his investigation has reached a stage at which he should continue his work as a special counsel. Upon considering his request, as well as the extraordinary circumstances related to this matter, I have concluded it is in the public interest to appoint him as special counsel, Garland said. Hunter Biden's attorney did not immediately return messages seeking comment Friday. The announcement of a special counsel is a major move for the typically cautious Garland. It comes amid a pair of sweeping Justice Department inquiries into, what, into former President Trump, who is leading in surveys of Republican voters to become Biden's chief rival in next year's election. It also comes as House Republicans mount their own inquiries into Hunter Biden's business dealings. They're struggling to connect his work to his father and have yet to produce evidence of any wrongdoing. Justice Department officials did not explain what prompted the appointment after years of investigating Hunter Biden, whose drug use and personal entanglements have trailed his father's political career. This case and other legal proceedings are shaping the 2024 presidential race in an unprecedented way. 
Garland, previously named a special counsel to investigate Trump's handling of classified records, as well as his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol and other efforts to overturn his 2020 loss to Joe Biden. Garland said he expects the new, the new special counsel to work expeditiously and in an even-handed and urgent manner. He said Weiss will have all the resources he requests to investigate the matter. Last month, Hunter Biden's plea deal over tax evasion and gun charges collapsed after the U.S. District Judge Mary Ellen Norelka, a Trump appointee, raised multiple concerns about the details of the agreement. Republicans had derided the agreement as a sweetheart deal as they pushed their own investigation. Representative James Comer, the Republican chair of the House Oversight Committee, has been leading the congressional inquiry into Hunter Biden's financial ties and transactions. The Kentucky lawmaker has obtained thousands of pages of financial records of members of the Biden family through subpoenas to the Treasury Department and financial institutions. Shortly after Hunter Biden reached an initial agreement with the government, Comer joined forces with two chairmen to, of, a powerful com, of powerful committees to launch a larger investigation into claims by two Internal Revenue Service agents that the Justice Department had improperly interfered in the years-long case. The GOP lawmaker said Weiss was being blocked from becoming a special counsel, a claim Weiss and the Justice Department have denied. Since then, Comer has brought in former business associate of, a former business associate of Hunter Biden, Devin Archer, who said in closed-door testimony that the Democratic president's son had capitalized on the relationship to court foreign investors when his father was vice president. Archer said Hunter Biden had used the illusion of access in Washington, but he offered no tangible evidence that Joe Biden had played any role in his son's work beyond saying hello during their daily calls. As a special counsel, Weiss will have broader authority to conduct a more sweeping inquiry. Weiss was nominated by Trump in 2017 to serve as U.S. Attorney in Delaware and was retained after President Biden took over so he could continue to oversee the Hunter Biden investigation. He had been a prosecutor for years before handling before he'd been a prosecutor for years handling violent crimes, uh, white collar offenses, and worked in private practice between stints in the federal prosecutor's office. That was Garland Names Special Counsel in Hunter Biden Inquiry from the Associated Press out of the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 12, 2023. All right, back here at home, here's a couple of articles with regards to our senior U.S. Senator. From the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 10, 2023, Feinstein leaves hospital after minor fall. California Senator is reportedly fine, but spill adds to concerns about her fitness. By, Be by Aaron B. Logan and Benjamin Oreskes. Washington. Senator Dianne Feinstein was hospitalized Tuesday afternoon after suffering a minor fall in her San Francisco home, her office confirmed. Feinstein's spokesperson, Adam Russell, said that the hospitalization was a precaution and that she returned home after all of her scans were clear. The fall occurred in Feinstein's kitchen, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told The Times. San Francisco Fire Department spokesman Captain Jonathan Baxter confirmed that the agency had responded to a reported medical emergency early Tuesday afternoon at an address that uh, the, that property records show belonged to the California senator. In a statement, Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, said that he had spoken with Feinstein 
and that she said she suffered no injuries, he added. He added, I'm glad she's back home and is now doing well. Feinstein 90 has faced scrutiny over her health issues and signs of cognitive decline. Last month, she started to deliver a speech a Last month, she started to deliver a speech during a roll call vote of the Senate Appropriations Committee and seemed confused when an aide interrupted to stop her. She voted after committee, chair, after committee Chair Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, repeatedly told her, just say I. Feinstein's health problems have occasionally derailed her appearances in California. Last week, she had failed to show at an event celebrating San Francisco's first cable car trip due to a cough the San Francisco Chronicle reported. The former San Francisco mayor was also absent Wednesday from the Lake Tahoe Summit, an annual meeting of lawmakers who represent the area. Her absence was noted repeatedly as speakers described her contributions to efforts to keep the lake's waters clear and pristine. Feinstein helped start the CONFAB in 1997 as regularly attended throughout the years. She had planned to skip this year's summit even before she fell, her office said. She has missed half of the of all Senate votes this year, more than any other senator, according to a ranking by ProPublica. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat of Pennsylvania, who was hospitalized for depression earlier this year, was the second most absent member, missing 36.6% of votes, the nonprofit reported. In May, a majority of Californians said they believed Feinstein's decline, declining health made her unfit for office, according to a UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll co-sponsored by the Times. And a June survey by the Public Policy Institute of California found that Feinstein's job approval among Californians had dropped to four, from 41 to 31 percent over the previous eight months, falling below 40 percent for the first time in the history of the Institute's polling. Her defenders have denounced questions about her fitness for office as sexist and ageist, arguing that aging male lawmakers do not face the same calls to resign. But powerful male politicians have also been unable to escape scrutiny of their fitness to serve recently. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, for example, froze mid-sentence for 32 seconds, unblinking during his weekly news conference last month before colleagues escorted him away. A crowd jeered at the Republican leader at an event in his home state on Saturday chanting, Retire! 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 Feinstein missed weeks of votes in the spring while fighting a severe case of shingles. Her absence threatened to delay confirmation of several of President Biden's nominees. She tried to solve that problem by tapping another Democratic senator to temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee, but Republicans blocked that effort. She returned to Washington in May after a nearly three-month absence and stayed in the city for the two-week Fourth of July recess. She plans to return to D.C. after the Senate's August recess for a funding fight that could lead to a government shutdown. Democrats will need all of their members' votes to help fend it off. Feinstein began her Senate career in 1992 and plans to retire when her term ends in January of 2025. Three Democratic lawmakers, Representatives Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam B. Schiff, are running to replace her. Feinstein recently petitioned a court to give her daughter more control over her late husband's trust, alleging it is not paying for her medical expenses. At the Lake Tahoe event Wednesday morning, Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat of California, said that he had spoken to Feinstein and that she was doing well after a little stumble. 
Why all the fuss, he recounted, fine sense saying, when he called to check in. I'm fine, Thaddeus said, she told him. Pelosi also spoke at the summit and described how Feinstein had been coming to the lake her entire life. Pelosi said she wished she could be in attendance. It was so unfortunate because this was a minor event, Pelosi said. She said that falling is something that happens in anybody's kitchen anytime, and that Feinstein's caretakers suggested she go to the hospital to be safe because of her age. Pelosi added, she's remarkable. That was Feinstein Leaves Hospital After a Minor Fall by Aaron V. Logan and Benjamin Oreskes from the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, August 10, 2023. Logan reported from Washington and Oreskes from Kings Beach, California. Now here's another article regarding Diane Feinstein from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 10, 2023. Feinstein is not at Tahoe, but her legacy is seen there by Benjamin Oreskes. Kings Beach, California. Senator Dianne Feinstein once spoke of a time 70 years ago when North America's largest alpine lake was crystal clear and its air unspoiled. As a 16-year-old, the San Francisco native fell for the re uh, region while on summer camp, while at summer camp on the lake's north shore and decades later built a vacation home near one of its many bays. Part of her life's work as a politician has been directing federal funding to preserving the gem on the California-Nevada border in the Sierra, where visitors flock by the millions to ski its mountain peaks, frolic in the lake, and enjoy natural splendor. Central to the Democrats' effort is the annual Lake Tahoe Summit, which she helped inaugurate in 1997 with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, Democrat of Nevada, where Feinstein was honored Wednesday. The bipartisan gathering attracts the top leaders from California and Nevada, and on occasion, U.S. presidents take stock of what was needed to keep the lake's waters clear and fend off toxic algae. Tell them this. I was a child in Lake Tahoe, Feinstein said in a text message read by former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of San Francisco, on Wednesday. I was an adult at Lake Tahoe. I'm a senator for Lake Tahoe, and I'm determined that Lake Tahoe will survive. Feinstein 90 missed this year's conference, which was hosted by Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat of California, the state's junior senator. Another milestone in the slow transition of California's top leadership to, a, to new generations of rising politicians. Feinstein already announced plans to retire after her current term, following the venerable Senator Barbara Boxer and Governor Jerry Brown out of public office. Pelosi, who has stepped down as speaker, has not announced her plans. The inaugural Lake Tahoe Summit led to federal legislation and a near year, yearly tradition in which politicians from Nevada and California descend on the mountain town and assess the government efforts to keep the lake healthy, the drought-ravaged forests adequately maintained, and the trails spotless. The conference has led to almost $1.3 billion in funds being funneled to projects related to the lake. Representative John Garamendi, Democrat of Walnut Grove, who served as Deputy Interior Secretary in the mid-1990s, recalled receiving a phone call from Feinstein. She finally said, Hey John, we've worked out a deal here. Harry Reid and I, we've got a great deal going and we're going to need your help. We want to have a celebration, Garamendi told the crowd gathered on Tahoe's northern shore. About a week later, I got a call from the White House who said, You need to figure out a big event at Tahoe. 
Reed and Feinstein are all over our back, and they want to celebrate this deal that they've put together. It was a measure of her relentless advocacy for the lake, he said, as he looked at the glistening water behind him. Still, the work of continues to preserve and protect the lake and surrounding, the, and surrounding forests, along with the tourism that sustains the region economically. On Wednesday, Herman Fillmore of the Washu tribe offered a benediction celebrating land uh, his people value so much as three paddleboards la languidly floated behind him, three people in kayaks passed by, and three ski jets zoomed along in the distance. The scene was a coda for the displacement his people have experienced and the environmental destruction that's occurred here as a result. We had newcomers to this place, Fillmore translated at the end. When they arrived, they cut down all of the trees and stole them. They dug up the ground. They took the gold and the silver. And they were looking that, that they were looking for because of because of that our forests and our lands and our waters are no longer clean and they're sick. Today our land is no longer good. This degradation was top of mind at this year's conference, but also focused on Feinstein's legacy. Her health has been failing of late, and she hadn't planned to attend this event because of the rigors of the travel involved. Just this week, as she was briefly hospitalized after a minor fall in her home in San Francisco, according to a spokesman in her op for her office. This came on top of an extended absence from Washington this year as she recovers from a bout of shingles. At King's Beach on Wednesday, though, colleagues and admirers dwelt on her capacity to keep the lake's restoration at the top of the federal government's mind. The focus led to a visit from President Clinton and Vice President Al Gore at the first conference, as well as President Obama in 2016, and a renewed effort this year to extend the life of the Lake Tahoe Restoration Act. Still, that infusion of capital hasn't been enough. Speaker after speaker at the conference mentioned at a, at, mentioned a recent report revealing that the lake's waters contained microplastic concentrations higher than those observed in ocean gyres, systems of ocean currents notorious for accumulating plastic waste. The Restoration Act is set to expire next year. Elected officials from Nevada and California, Republican and Democrat, stated uh, with confidence that the renewal which would allow for the allocation of previously authorized federal funds would pass Congress. Though Feinstein is a sponsor of the bill, Nevada Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto has been leading the charge for renewal. It was Diane and consistently it was Diane and consistently has been Diane who believes in what we're doing here doing here around Lake Tahoe, and I just want to thank her. And, of course, Senator Reid for starting this back in 97, Cortez Masto told the audience of environmental groups, government officials, and advocates. Cortez Masto, Garamendi, and others said Feinstein would be as aggressive as ever to bring resources home. The event ended with a recorded statement from Feinstein apologizing for missing the conference. She recalled riding her bike around the lake as a kid and lots of family vacations spent on its crystal clear waters. I'm a city girl at heart, but there's no denying that Tahoe has been a very special place for me, just as it is for so many who call it home or visit its shores, she said, her voice booming over loudspeakers. That's why I've made it my mission to preserve and protect this magical place from the many threats that it continues to face from overdevelopment, climate change, 
invasive species, and wildfire so that everyone can enjoy its wonders for generations to come. That was Feinstein is not a Tahoe, but our legacy is seen there by Benjamin Oreskes from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, August 10, 2023. Okay, and now we're going to move on to uh, the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 6, 2023. What can blossom? His take on things can be a bit idiosyncratic, but I've discovered what he truly believes by Sharon Ann Newman. I had been unlucky in love. I was over 40 and had never been married. My two best friends met their boyfriends using online dating sites, so I signed up hoping to meet my match. I found a doctor who square danced, a lawyer who made his own beer, and an accountant who baked brownies. Those were good dates. They were gentlemen, even though they never called me back. One bad, the bad dates are another story. One man met me at Jerry's famous deli in Encino for lunch. When the check came, he explained that he had forgotten his wallet and I would have to pay the bill. I got up ostensibly to use the restroom. I called over a waitress and asked for a separate check and paid it, leaving him to wash the dishes. My next date met me at a health food restaurant. We had a pleasant conversation and he paid the bill. As he walked me to my car, our waitress came running after us, yelling about not receiving a tip. It was a scene. I left while they continued the screaming match. I forgot about these dates, however, when I read Rick's profile. He was an engineer working for Boeing, and his hobby was reading the Bible. The first time I met Rick, he brought me a flower. Not a bouquet of flowers, but a two-foot cotton flower with a smiley face. It was an immediate spark. He was handsome and considerate and sweet. I had concerns about him, though. He tells bad jokes to anyone who will listen. I'm on a seafood diet. I see food, and I eat it. When he hears someone speaking Spanish, he says, My Spanish stops at taco, burrito, and enchilada. There used to be an Orange County shopping complex called The Block, and whenever Rick had out-of-town out company, he would ask them if they'd like to take a walk around The Block. Then he'd drive them to The Block. He thinks that's hilarious. Another thing, Rick is a very careful driver. driver. He absolutely refuses to turn right on a red light, even when traffic is clear. Some drivers behind us wait patiently while others blow their horns and make unfortunate hand gestures. One day, a police officer on a motorcycle was behind us and pulled us over. He said, don't you know you can make a right turn on a red light? Rick keeps the vehicle code in his glove box and proceeded to show the officer the line. You may make a right turn on a red light, not must. The officer wished me good luck with him and left in a huff. Rick had concerns about me too. He hates that I wash the dishes immediately after meals and thinks I'm crazy for talking to the TV while watching Dodgers and Angels games. We didn't kiss until the fifth date, and even then it was my idea. You can't rush a man whose hobby is reading the Bible. He also told me to meet his family. He has a lovely sister, Melinda, who was a teacher like me, a brother-in-law, Warren, with an ever-present smile, and a brother, Alan, a computer expert who runs his own business. They were very welcoming. We sat on the floor eating cheese puffs and playing Monopoly. Because Rick lives in Stanton, we saw the sights of Orange County. We went to Disneyland and posed for pictures with Minnie and Mickey Mouse. We visited Knott's Berry Farm, where the fried chicken is even better than the pie. At the traffic circle in Orange, we roamed the many antique stores and came across some things from my childhood that are now considered antiques. 
The Orange County Fair was exciting. My highlight was the Goat Beauty pageant. Rick cheered for the contestants in the pig races. Corned beef sandwiches and cheese strudel were on the menu for us at the famous Catella Bakery, Deli, and Restaurant. I live in Sherman Oaks, so we visited Universal Studios. We frequented the Studio City Farmer's Market and brought baked, bought baked goods from Homeboy Industries. We peered through the fence of the, at the iconic Sunkissed Building, watching the construction of Citrus Commons across the street from Westfield Fashion Center. We set a wedding date, but I wasn't feeling well, so I went for a checkup. My doctor took a CT scan and discovered I had pancreatic cancer. We saw a specialist who said I would die in a matter of months. My friend said Rick would leave me, but he did the opposite. Rick was on a mission. He spent all of his free time researching my illness and finding the best doctors. Best of all, he showed up with suitcases and moved into my home. He slept on my uncomfortable couch. He took me to every doctor's appointment, kept track of my medications, filled my refrigerator with healthy food, composed a song for me, and told me I was beautiful when my hair fell out. Melinda crocheted caps and donated them to my fellow bald patients. My life today consists of watching television, reading, and embroidering, and drawing. I'm hooked on The Bachelorette, and I'm afraid of my mailbox because the copay bills are sky high. I've been in and out of Providence Holy Cross Medical Center, but I'm used to hospitals because I had a second job tutoring homebound and hospitalized children. At one point during my journey, my doctor was told I wasn't eating enough, so he asked me what my favorite food was. I replied, tomatoes. So he interrupted his busy schedule and went out to buy me a bag of them. My diagnosis was two and a half years ago, and although I'm not in remission yet, I'm still fighting and I will get there. I've also realized two things. One is that everybody knows somebody with cancer and is anxious to tell me about it. The second is that I'm madly in love with Rick and all of my concerns are out the window. My new hobbies are trying to trying on bridal gowns and reading the Bible. That was What Can Blossom by Sharon Ann Newman from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, August 6, 2023. The author is a retired teacher of all levels and uh, subjects. She lives in Sherman Oaks. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the LA area. And we want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email laaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash laaffairs. And now we're going to go on to this one from the business section of the Los Angeles Times from Friday, August 11th, 2023. Will reality TV stars unionize? SAG-AFTRA throws support behind Bethany Frankel's push for protections for unscripted actors by Wendy Lee. The Real Housewives of New York City veteran Bethany Frankel's push to gain union protections for reality television stars has taken a step forward. Hollywood Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA on Thursday said it has engaged in discussions with Frankel's attorney, Brian Friedman, around the subject of treatment of reality performers some of whom say they have been exploited and faced unfair treatment by the entertainment industry. Frankel, inspired by the writers' and actors' work stoppages that have uh, ground Hollywood to a halt this, this summer, recently floated the idea that performers on reality shows should go on strike as well. She has brought on heavyweight attorneys to help with her case, uh, with, her, with her cause of demanding reality star protections, including pay minimums. 
In a statement, SAG-AFTRA encouraged reality performers to contact the Guild to engage in a new path to union coverage. We stand ready to assess Bethany Franco, uh, Brian Feeman, and attorney Mark Garagos, along with uh, reality performers, and our members in the fight and are tired and, and are and are tired of studios and production companies trying to circumvent the union in order to exploit the talent that they rely upon to make a product, SAG-AFTRA says. The Guild represents reality stars and can cover them under its network code agreement, depending on the structure of production and performers involved, SAG-AFTRA said. Networks and studios have encouraged, promoted, created, and fostered an environment which profits from subjecting reality performers to deplorable working conditions, little or no pay, illegal contracts, and actual criminal conduct, Friedman said in an email uh, statement. SAG-AFTRA's iconic commitment today to join Bethany Frankel and other reality performers in this fight is a watershed moment that serves notice to these profiteers that financial gain is not a sufficient justification for the abhorrent mistreatment of unprotected workers. NBC Universal, which operates Real Housewives Network Bravo, referred the Times to a statement and released on Friday that said it is committed to maintaining a safe and respectable workplace for reality show cast and crew. At the outset, we require our third-party production partners to have appropriate workplace policies and training in place, NBC Universal said in a statement. If complaints are brought to our attention, we work with our production partners to ensure that timely appro appropriate action is or has been taken, including investigations, medical and <clears throat> or psychological support, and other remedial action that may be warranted, such as personnel changes. The move comes amid dual stri Hollywood strikes as film and TV writers and actors push for demands in a new agreement with studios represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. AMPTP represents businesses including Amazon Studios, Netflix, and Walt Disney Company. Writers and actors are demanding better pay from streaming shows and protections against the use of artificial intelligence. The WGA has been on strike since early May, and performers joined them on picket lines in mid-July. With production of scripted content on pause, networks have relied on non-scripted series to fill the gap. Last month, Frankel on social media pushed for reality stars to fight for union protections. Some of Frankel's proposals included a minimum of $5,000 per episode paid to talent if a show airs and that uh, talent should receive a 10% raise for each season. And if the show is a success, it should be subject to negotiation or the talent can walk away according to a video she posted on Instagram. Reality stars are the stepchildren, the losers, the mules, the pack horses, the ones that the entertainment industry is going to rely on right now to carry the water and do the heavy lifting when real stars, real A-list Hollywood is on strike, Frankel said in another video also posted last month. More reality stars are coming forward about their mistreatment on shows. For example, Love is Blind alum Nick Thompson a former vice president in software, said he's had trouble finding work. I can't get a job because people don't take me seriously, Thompson told the Daily Mail. He said the show ruined his life. I wish I could just go back and have a nice life that I had built for myself instead of wondering whether my mortgage is going to get paid. Thompson said filming took place 18 to 20 hours a day and after 
After that, he was locked in his hotel room, adding, "You literally, you're literally covered. You literally are held captive like a prisoner." Others who were on the show have raised concerns about not being given enough mental health support or adequate food during filming. In April, the Love Is Blind production company Kinetic Content told the Times, "The well-being of our participants is of paramount importance to Kinetic. We have rigorous protocols in place to take care." To care for each person before, during, and after filming. That was "Will Reality TV Stars Unionize?" by Wendy Lee from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 11, 2023. All right, now we're going to some other entertainment news. This is actually from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, August 7, 2023. Oppenheimer makes historical blunders. The movie is mostly right about the man's Manhattan Project role. But it has some errors by Michael Hiltzik. Oppenheimer has been justly praised for its attempt at historical fidelity in telling the life of life story of the brilliant, agonized physicist. But it's not a documentary. The movie gets most things right about Oppenheimer's role in the Manhattan Project, the government effort to build the atomic bomb, as one would expect, given that filmmaker Christopher Nolan based it on American Prometheus. The superb 2005 biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. But artistic imperatives and Nolan's understandable choice to tell his story from Oppenheimer's point of view led him to perpetuate a few myths about the making of the atomic bomb and to gloss over aspects of the story that may be interested for lay viewers. Based on what I gleaned about Oppenheimer. And the project, from researching my 2015 biography of Berkeley physicist Ernest O. Lawrence, played in the movie by Josh Hartnett, Big Science, I'll try to correct the Hollywood record and fill in the gaps. Let's jump in. For the most part, Nolan sticks to the facts. Oppenheimer is notable among biopics for his portray- portraying real people doing things, the things that they did at the time, even peripheral characters who fill. Who flit briefly across the screen are given their real names or identifiable characteristics. As far as I can tell, the only imaginary or compo- composite character in the film is the unnamed Senate aide played by Alden Ehrenreich, whose dramatic function is to be a sounding board for the grousing of Louis L. Strauss, brilliantly played by Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer's political nemesis. That bongo-playing physicist glimpsed at the Trinity plutonium bomb. Uh, test in the New York, de- New Mexico desert. Unnamed in the film, he is Richard Feynman, later to be rever- revered as Caltech's resident genius. But at 24, attached to the Los Alamos bomb lab at the very beginning of his scientific career, he did bring his bongos to the desert. Lawrence's associate Luis Alvarez, later a Nobel laureate, is accurately portrayed as bursting into an Oppenheimer seminar in 1939. With the first news of the discovery of nuclear fission by German physicists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann, the film also accurately shows Oppenheimer instantly responding, "That's impossible!" Promptly withdrawing his snap judgment, and within a week, outlining how the discovery might be used to make a bomb. But the film doesn't cover Alvarez's resentful and damaging testimony in the Oppenheimer security hearing, during which he claimed to have never heard that. Uh, Vannevar Bush, the top science advisor to Presidents Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, reveal that Truman had not trusted Oppenheimer. 
Bush, who was played by Matthew Modine, vociferously contradicted the story. The most glaring historical gaffe is the film's perpetuation of the myth that Oppenheimer was the boss of the Manhattan Project. It shows him assuring General Leslie R. Groves that he can run the project. Matt Damon would have had to put on at least 50 or 60 pounds to more accurately impersonate Groves, who would tip the scales at nearly 300 pounds. Oppenheimer was merely the boss of Los Alamos, one of the project's numerous separate labs and technical installations. Its job was to actually build the bomb, drawing on the research of labs at Columbia, the University of Chicago, and Berkeley. Though Groves was the overall boss, the project's scientific management was divided, rather textually, between Lawrence and Arthur Holly Compton of the University of Chicago. Lawrence was the scientist whose advice Groves trusted the most. He originally wanted Lawrence to run the lab that was eventually built at Los Alamos, but decided Lawrence was too important to be limited to the bomb-designing task. Uh, Oppenheimer was Groves' second choice, but he turned to Lawrence for assurance that Oppenheimer could effectively run the, run the bomb lab. Lawrence, who at the time was a close friend of Oppenheimer, his valued colleague at UC Berkeley, he named his first son Robert after Oppenheimer, a sewage Groves' concerns about Oppenheimer's leftist politics and lack of a Nobel Prize. Lawrence sealed the deal for his friend by promising Groves that if Oppenheimer failed in his task, he would take it over himself. A few words about Ernest Lawrence. Before and during the war, the South Dakota native was the most famous and influential scientist in America, arguably the first homegrown scientific celebrity in American history. The inventor of the cyclotron, the most important atom smasher of its era, and the invention that transformed particle physics in the 1930s, Lawrence was featured on the cover of Time magazine on November 1, 1937, over the caption, he creates and destroys, and won the Nobel Prize in 1939. Lawrence's skill at explaining complex scientific principles in lay terms kept him in the public eye via radio talks and newspaper articles and helped him attract millions of dollars in foundation and government funding for his radiation laboratory, the Rad Lab, at UC Berkeley. It was due to his influence that UC was awarded the contract to run Los Alamos after the war, which it still holds, albeit with somewhat diminished authority. Lawrence also invented a color TV system that was eventually incorporated into Sonny's Trinitron technology. Oppenheimer, by contrast, was almost entirely unknown to the general public until after the, uh, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945 when he was thrust into the fame as the father of the atomic bomb. Among the physics fraternity, however, Oppenheimer was virtually a cult figure, which is painted only murkily in the film. His graduate students at Berkeley and Caltech, where he held joint appointments, chain-smoked his brain of cigarettes, Chesterfields, imitated his lopping uh, gait, and replicated the most unintelligible mumbling of his lecturing style. Austrian physicist Paul Ehrenfest a friend at Oppenheimer's, who sat through one of his Caltech lectures, straining to make out of out his words, finally blurted out, Avi, is it a secret? Another myth perpetuated by the film is that the physicists were afraid that the bomb might uh, blast might ignite the atmosphere, destroying the world. Oppenheimer depicts the possibility of being debated almost as late as the Trinity test. 
In fact, it had been raised very briefly in 1942 and promptly put to rest by Manhattan Project physicist, physicist Hans Bethe, who later called it absolute nonsense. One more point concerns Oppenheimer's recollection that upon witnessing the fireball produced by the Trinity test, he immediately thought of a line from the Sanskrit Bhagavad Gita, I am become, I be, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. The film takes him at his word, but the truth is that he never mentioned this in public until 1965. One friend considered the claim to be one of Oppenheimer's priestly exaggerations. By the way, the line from the Hindu script has been translated in other ways, notably as "I am become time, destroyer of worlds." Perhaps a subtler and more sinister thought than Oppenheimer's version. Some aspects of the 1954 security hearing, as depicted in the film, warrant further examination. The film accurately shows that Groves asked if he would give Oppenheimer a security clearance at the time of the hearing, answered carefully that he would not, under the stringent security rules imposed by the Atomic Energy Commission. But a subsequently sotto voce remark to the, uh, to the effect that he probably wouldn't give any of the Manhattan Project scientists clearance until those rules don't appear, doesn't appear anywhere in the 1,011-page hearing transcript. Then there's Lawrence's decision not to testify against his old friend. By 1954, Lawrence and Oppenheimer had had a bitter falling out. The film attributes this mostly to Lawrence's fury upon learning that Oppenheimer had carried on an affair with his wife of Caltech physicist Richard Tolman, a close friend of Lawrence. Tolman died of a heart attack shortly after learning of the betrayal, which Lawrence ascribed to his broken heart. But there's another reason for their split, was Opie's campaigning against the hydrogen bomb program, which Lawrence favored and was a major source of, his, of government patronage for his lab. Lawrence uh, Livermore National Laboratory, an offshoot of the Rad Lab, had been founded largely to pursue research on the so-called super. Although Lawrence had promised Strauss, who as chairman of the AEC oversaw all civilian, civilian government nuclear research and stage managed the security hearing that he would testify, he was racked with second thoughts as his appearance date approached. Lawrence knew that the physics community overwhelmingly supported Oppenheimer and that Berkeley had become the center of anti-Oppenheimer sentiment part because of the conflict over the H-bomb program. This was not a good look for the Rad Lab. Contrary to the film's depiction, Lawrence never actually showed up outside the hearing room. Instead, he phoned Strauss the Monday before his scheduled appearance from the government's Oak Ridge Lab, which he had founded and designed for the production of enriched uranium for the bomb ultimately dropped on Hiroshima. The Trinity test was of a plutonium bomb like that dropped on Nagasaki, which was a much more complicated engineering challenge. As the film shows, Lawrence pleaded a medical excuse, an outbreak of ulcerative colitis, the condition that would ultimately kill him in 1958. After Strauss responded with a vicious tongue lashing over the phone, culminating in an accusation of cowardice, Lawrence summoned his fellow Oak Ridge guests, all government lab directors, to prove he was not feigning illness by showing them his toilet, brimming with bright red blood. Christopher Nolan's film implicitly asks viewers to come to their own conclusions about the moral dimension of the decision to drop the bomb on Japan. A committee of four physicists, Oppenheimer, Lawrence, Compton, 
and Enrico Fermi was tasked with the options, which included staging a demonstration at an uninhabited Pacific island to show Japanese officials what they faced if they didn't surrender. Lawrence, who had worked with Japanese scientists to build the first cyclotrons outside the U.S., was the last member of the committee to agree that using the bomb was the only choice, but the possibility of a dud demonstration was too great a risk. As the committee chair, Oppenheimer signed the one-page memo dated June 16, 1945, that came to the dismaying conclusion that we see no acceptable alternative to direct military use. What the physicists didn't know was that the decision had already been taken out of their hands. That Boeing B-29 bombers that would carry the bombs had already been assembled on Tinian Island, 1,500 miles south of Japan, and the military decision to use the bombs was preordained. How should we think about the development of nuclear weapons in Oppenheimer's role? My view is that the Manhattan Project was understandable and defensible given the wartime context. Allied physicists, especially refugees from the Nazi regime, knew that although Hitler had driven away Jewish scientists, the physicists left behind in Germany were among the best in the world, perfectly capable of developing the atomic bomb. They were in a panic that Hitler might get the weapon before the Allies. They had no way of knowing that, as the Allies discovered after Germany's surrender, there had been no German bomb project because the Germans miscalculated the physics involved and didn't have access to the resources and equipment, including the cyclotron in the U.S. and Britain. The decision to pursue the hydrogen bomb is another story. Fermi and other lead physicists understood that its incredible power meant it could only be a weapon of genocide. Some work on it and worked on it anyway. Oppenheimer's no notion that nuclear research should be placed under international control to forestall the perils of nuclear proliferation was idealistic, but in terms of geopolitical reality, hopelessly naive. There was no way that the U.S. and Britain would cede control of the technology to any international body after 1945. The tragic message of Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer is that the is that humankind has lived under a nucleus sword sword of Damocles ever since. That was Oppenheimer makes historical blunders by Michael Hiltzik from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, August 7, 2023. Hiltzik writes a blog on LATimes.com. Follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at Hiltzik M or email Michael.Hiltzik at LATimes.com. All right, now we have this here tribute article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, August 9, 2023. Friedkin gave Devil His Due. The Exorcist was just one of many films the director elevated with his signature intensity. By Justin Chang, film critic. As he noted in more than a few of the generously candid interviews he gave over the years, William Friedkin believed profoundly in the existence of evil. That may not sound like the stuff of revelation coming from the director of The Exorcist, though one of the reasons that the 1973 landmark lives on so forcefully, the reason is it's outlived all the half-hearted horror homages, uh, the pea soup parodies, and the still ongoing chain of sequels and prequels, is that it treats the reality of the demonic with a deadly serious, utterly unfakeable conviction. 
To these eyes, the movie's most subversive suggestion is that the devil has taken possession of young Rebecca McNeil may only be the greater of two evils. The lesser evil, arguably, is the pervasive skepticism that attends her mother and her caretakers as they subject the girl to a battery of medical tests shot with an icy clinical detachment that's more disturbing than the movie's head-spinning genre flourishes. Again and again, they cannot, they, cannot counten, they cannot countenance the idea that Regan's malaise might be supernatural. But Freakin clearly counter, count, countenances it and then some. If there's a reason, The Exorcist is not just one of the greatest horror films, but one of the greatest religious films. It's in how deeply he commits to the redemption properties of faith and deliverance. The power of Christ compels him too. Even so, you would be forgiven for watching Friedkin's movies and feeling that evil interested him more than it spoke to and drew out his ferociously dark gifts as a filmmaker. It was this specific signature intensity that distinguished him even among his fellow new Hollywood iconoclasts, including his one-time partners, Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich, who took the industry by storm in the early 70s. If Friedkin approached evil, on a spiritual and intellectual plane, his genius was for channeling it viscerally and with sometimes brute bluntness, for conjuring otherworldly menace uh, through the sometimes steady, often agitated movements of his camera and for pushing his actors to unimaginable heights of terror and duress. But Freakin pushed himself, too. The stories of his production woes are legion, and with an unflagging intensity that defines so much of his long, glorious, wayward, and undervalued career. In the weeks before his death, Monday at the age of 87, he had been putting the finishing touches on his now final film, an adaptation of Herman Wauk's play, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which will premiere in a few weeks at the Venice International Film Festival. Strangely enough, I remember emerging from a Venice press screening of another stage-to-screen work, Killer Joe, is unrepentantly nasty Texas noir from 2011, and thinking it had been a while since I'd seen a picture in which a free-floating malevolence seemed to corso palpably through every frame. A malevolence that found its greatest concentration in Matthew McConaughey's performance in the vile, predatory, fried chicken weaponizing title role. It's the least heralded touchstone of the McConaughey's and possibly the best. Killer Joe was the second of Franken's two screen adaptations of plays by Tracy Letts. The first was Bug, 2007, a skin-crawlingly claustrophobic psychological freakout starring Michael Shannon and Ashley Judd that proved scarce, uh, scarcely more reassuring in its evocation of, of the horrors that, uh, that fester within. The viciously assaultive quality of these later movies makes them especially tough, though not, uh, not impossible to return to. It's not something you'd say about the hectic, unadorned rawness that drives in, that drives in every sense a perennial like the French Connection, 1971, which vaulted Freak into a powerhouse prominence and won five Academy Awards, including Oscars for Best Picture and Director. Here, the seething fury of Freakin's filmmaking springs to life, not just in Gene Hackman's performance as the most dogged of New York detectives, but also through a roaring, no-holds-barred plunge into the heart of the city that the director has long traced back to his own nonfiction roots, 
as well as the vivid documentary-infused realism of Cosa Gavras' 1969 landmark Z. Pauline Kael, famously not a fan of the French Connection, described it as an aggravated case of New York and what we once feared mass entertainment might become, jolts for jocks. More than a half century later, though the jolting kineticism of Friedkin's approach feels like something almost akin to classism in its back-to-basic spirit and furious texture. Like so many 1970s triumphs of guerrilla-style action filmmaking that still astonishing climactic car chase, Hackman wailing on his car horn below as he pursues his quarry fleeing on the B train above feels like a postponing rebuke to so many of today's Hollywood action movies with their thrills-free preponderance of computerized green screens and weightless digital extras. Eras change, so do movies. That's quite literally true of The French Connection, which made headlines just a few weeks ago after it came to light that a six-second scene in which Hackman uses a racial slur, had been excised from the movie on digital platforms, including Apple TV Plus and the Criterion channel. It was, as many uh, rightly decried, a ludicrous case of sensorial overreach that, in the misguided name of sensitivity, sought to shield audiences from the unapologetic racism of Hackman's character and the institution he represents, and also to perpetuate the unfortunate myth that a movie's protagonist must always be its hero. If The French Connection and The Exorcist made Franken's reputation, much of his subsequent career, which his unkindest detractors might characterize as a 50-year fall from grace, beset by financing woes and aborted projects, remains ripe for rediscovery. I don't know what that means for the many box office disappointments he directed during the 80s and 90s, including Rampage, Blue Chips, and Jade, a personal favorite of Freakin's, but in many cases, the reclamation has been underway for some time, especially in the case of Sorcerer, 1977, and To Live and Die in L.A., 1985, two thrillers that underwhelmed on arrival, but have for many taken their place among the director's crowning achievements. Few critical re-estimations are perhaps more fascinating than the one that has happened to Cruising, Freakin's 1980 cop thriller set against the backdrop of West Village gay life and death. Even pre-release, it stirred a massive outcry among those who feared its serial killer plot would inflame homophobic perceptions and violence. Al Pacino's fully committed performance as an undercover cop and the story's slippery sexual politics rattled nerves in every direction. Critically and commercially, the movie barely lived up to the excitement of its controversy. But in the decades since, more than a few defenders have repositioned Cruising as the opposite of the anti-gay document it was once dismissed as, instead seeing it as an audacious, playful, and exuberantly atmospheric plunge into a zone of unfettered male desire, a bracing sweat and leather spectacle that was rare for mainstream cinema then, and remains rare now. Franken may have approached this milieu with an outsider's naivety, but crucially, the evil that wends its way through cruising is merely in this world, not of it. That sets it decidedly apart from the horror that swiftly and unrelentingly suffuses Sorcerer, his masterly nail-biter about four damned men making a journey through a Colombian heart of darkness. Although the film was adapted by Wallen Green uh, from the same, the same Jorge Arnaut novel that spun Henri Jorge Closdow's classic, 
The Wages of Fear, 1953, Franken insisted he had embarked on not a remake, but a reimagining. And indeed, what emerged from this astoundingly complicated and embattled production feels like a revved up beast of its own, making a tour de force of blood, rain, oil, and nitroglycerin that you know is doomed to end badly and becomes all the more mesmerizing for it. It's the work of a filmmaker who, in his finest moments, could turn the screen into a portal, opening his eyes and ours to the darkest of magic. That was Franken Gave Devil His Due by Justin Chang, film critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, August 9, 2023. Right, here's another tribute article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 11, 2023, a pitch-perfect coda to a cinematic duet. Robbie Robertson's work with Scorsese bears the sweetest fruit in Flower Moon by Tim Grieving. This article was not supposed to be an appreciation. I was hours away from interviewing Robbie Robertson for a celebrity feature about his most impressive film score for the forthcoming Killers of the Flower Moon and his long and varied collaboration with its director, Martin Scorsese, who was also going to answer some of our questions. The gods had other plans. Robertson, whose mother was born on the Six Nations Reserve near Lake Erie in Canada, breathes and strums a windstorm of personal expression into the film's staggering score, which Scorsese cranks noticeably loud in the mix. It pounds along with the beat of drums and shakers, chords splashing on acoustic and electric guitars, accented with banjo twangs and the bird-like cries of various flutes. Robertson's contribution is an astonishing and lively musical ecosystem that gives immediate authenticity to Scorsese's equally vivid presentation of Osage life and culture in the in 1920s Oklahoma. It's music that proudly worships and dances with these people, and alternately weeps for their oppression, at times sounding almost sick and their, at their treatment by these stories white predators. The movie was the pitch-perfect canvas for Robertson's gifts, not just his native ancestry, but also his rootsy songwriting, DNA, and skills as a musical storyteller. When the movie comes out in October, it will be the last film he scored. Robertson died Wednesday at age 80. Scorsese spotted that skill right away when he first locked arms with Robertson in 1976. In The Last Waltz, the director cinematically captured the star-studded farewell performance of the band, Robertson's virtuistic outfit that shared a constellation with Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and a dozen other 1960s legends who joined them on stage that night. Scorsese not only interviewed Robertson and his bandmates, but also coordinated every lyric and shot with Robertson as though it were a choreographed musical. The songwriter also produced the picture, and in his on-screen chats with the director, he comes off like a scruffy, charismatic character out of one of Scorsese's early movies, maybe Mean Streets. Each time we went out to do a number and a concert, it was like doing a round in a prize fight, Robertson says in the film. Now this automatically triggered something in me, Scorsese told The Hollywood Reporter in 1978 about the line. It's like Meat and Streets. I began to understand their characters a little more. Because nobody had ever knew, ever knew the band, they had this aura about them that you couldn't go near. And I began to talk to them 
and they begin to realize what kind of guys they are and the pain they're going through every time they sing a song. That's what I wanted to capture. Hollywood came calling, and Robertson was cast as a lead in the 1980 film Carney, which he also produced. But he was much more at home in the studio and on the soundtrack, and he quickly became Scorsese's wingman in all things music. It's never been about traditional movie music, Robertson told Headliner in 2019 about that role. Scorsese has often used rock and pop songs in place of scoring throughout his prolific film career. It was the soundtrack of his life, he had said, that the music that was pouring out of, his, out of apartments and car windows in the background of his own story. After the last waltz, he deputized Robertson to be his music consultant and soundtrack supervisor. Starting on The King of Comedy, the 1982 cringe comedy starring classic starring Robert De Niro that was recently replicated in Joker, uh, Robertson helped curate and produce songs for numerous Scorsese movies. He would often contribute a song or two himself, and where an occasionally instrumental score cue was needed, he would supply that as well. On The Color of Money, Scorsese's sequel to The Hustler, starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, Robertson conceived a fitting barroom jukebox soundtrack, teaming up with blues legend Willie Dixon and arranger Gil Evans. Robertson couldn't read or write music, so he recorded tapes of himself humming for Evans to translate for an orchestra. He also sent the tapes to Scorsese, and he put it in the movie, Robertson recalled in 2019. I said, no, that doesn't go in the movie. That's me just composing in my kind of way. We're going to do that with the orchestra. And he said, oh, no, it works really well. From then on, Robertson quipped, I have been careful about what I send him. The anecdote is revealing of their playful, unorthodox partnership, which continued from Casino through 2019's The Irishman. Scorsese would frequently work with conservatory-training filmed composers to write more traditional scores. Howard Shore, also a Canadian, was a favorite. But with a sprawling, multi-era tale of an Irish-American uh, mobster, the director wanted some of Robertson's distinct magic. The musician went looking for a haunting mood, he told Headliner, and came up with an ambling death march for Blues Harmonica and Ink Black Bass. His score provided the glue between a needle drop soundtrack that featured Glenn Miller and Fats Domino. The picture ends with an original song, I Hear You Paint Houses, a nod to the Charles Brandt book that inspired the movie, with Van Morrison singing the phrase and Robertson repeating it. It would have been a fitting coda for to the four-decade duet between Robertson and Scorsese, but then the filmmaker made a stunning late-career masterpiece based on the 2017 book Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant and gave Robertson his most prominent and poetic role in any score, uh, scoring assignment he'd ever taken on. The resulting music, so rich in mood and melody, te uh, teeming with the terroir of Turtle Island and the first ill-fitted Americans who sang and danced with spirits, is the best music Robertson ever wrote for the screen. It's not fair that he didn't live to experience its reception, but it could be a finer couldn't be a finer eulogy for a chief American musician. That was a pitch-perfect coda to a cinematic duet by Tim Grieving from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 11, 2023. All right, now we have one article here from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for, uh, for August 10th, 2023. And this is called, She Just Needed a Little Push to Take Off. Laura Karpman 
using a 70-piece orchestra and South Asian singers helped Miss Marvel reach superhero heights by Tim Grieving. Every superhero needs a super catchy theme, and Laura Cartman was excited to give, to give Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Miss Marvel, her own musical identity, even if the first try didn't take. Cartman wrote a theme for the Disney Plus series early last year, but executive producer Sana Amanat felt Miss Marvel was lacking a sense of lift, which Amanat explained by gesturing upward with her hand. A lot of the DNA of the actual power of the superhero is often embedded in the theme itself, Cartman says. Her making the gesture, and she is Miss Marvel. I mean, the character is based on her life, so actually having the superhero sitting with me in my studio and saying it should be this, it was really helpful. The resulting Emmy-nominated theme, which lifts off with rising phrases belted by French horns and backed by beats both electronic and Pakistani, fit the character like a cape. It was vital for Cartman to gather several South Asian musicians who could add authentic culture, text, cultural texture to the classic heroine blockbuster sound, so she enlisted a frequent collaborator and Hindu, Hindustani singer Ganavia Doreswami, as well as violinist Raginder. The score became a blend of East and West ancient and modern, befitting the story of a teen girl who lives with a Pakistani-American family in modern New Jersey. Honestly, Cartman says, the biggest challenge was making sure that all three of those aspects of our personality really worked together so that you could have a sound that had hip-hop elements in it, that had South Asian elements, that also could break out into straight-out traditional Marvel superhero. She recorded the music for all six episodes with a 70-piece orchestra in Vienna, as well as with a group of soloists in Pakistan and India. For the fifth episode, time and again, Cartman also worked with an eight-person choir in Los Angeles from Pakistani and Indian traditions in what she calls a life-changing recording session. She had only five days to compose the score for this 40-minute chapter, which condensed the epic love story of Kamala's great-grandmother, Aisha, sitting in South Asia's fraught part, uh, partition of 1947 that led to horrific violence and millions of refugees. So we have to... So, uh, so you have to have a new love theme, the composer says. You had to have all of the incredible drama of the partition. You had to have the seminal moment of not only Kamala's life, but her entire family, and, in fact, her entire people. Plus, she had to save the day. So it was a lot. Cartman rose to the challenge, writing a dreamy, romantic, Indian-style raga for a young Aisha and her revolutionary husband and an all-too-brief idol that produced a child but is quickly interrupted by conflict. Pounding war drums and chanting choir gave uh, give way to a tense emotional set piece when Aisha dies and her infant daughter becomes lost in a crowded train platform, which, a, a, which Cartman accompanies with a mounting collage of voices, native instruments, and urgent trumpet. Kamala uses her enchanted bangle to save her own grandmother, and the choir takes up the theme in a round singing Takdir, meaning fate in Urdu. Too often, the scores for Marvel films have, and shows have been disappointingly generic, but Cartman found a way to serve the Disney-owned heroics while still giving the show a distinctive and decidedly human identity rooted in a specific rich cultural tradition. Her Emmy-nominated score for this episode is the apex of her achievement. 
it's really an incredible honor to be able to help these stories, to help tell these stories that have not been told and are so urgently needed to be told, she says, that it feels like a calling rather than her gig. And she gets to continue the narrative in an even bigger way with her score for Marvel's next feature, The Marvels, which Kamala Khan is a major character. The music has already been recorded for the film, which is planned for a November release. And all Cartman can say about it is that there are obviously going to be connections and references to what went on in the series. The music will undoubtedly be something to talk about. That was She Just Needs a Little Push to Take Off by Tim Grieving from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for August 10, 2023. Okay, so now let's turn to jewishjournal.com and we're going to go right to the community section for this article that was written about a rabbi whom I have I know personally and have been to on many occasion. This is called Rabbis of LA, Reb Jason's Long Road to Temple B'nai Hayim. Known to his congregation as Reb Jason, Van Leeuwen has taken a rather twisty path to the rabbinite by Ari L. Noonan, August 10, 2023. Stately and traditional-looking, the century-old building housing Temple B'nai Hayim is tucked in a quiet residential Sherman Oaks neighborhood and could easily be missed. For the past 11 years, Rabbi Jason Van Leeuwen, rabbi, cantor, chaplain, vocalist, composer, producer, actor, director, activist, and, most recently, opera performer, has been the face of the conservative temple. Known to his congregation as Reb Jason, Van Leeuwen has taken a rather twisty path to the rabbinate. While he grew up in what he called a conventional conservative household in Utica, New York, young Jason's world was rocked when his parents divorced when he was nine years old. An even bigger shock was his father's remarriage to a devout Irish Catholic woman with children of her own. It was a life-changing event for young Jason. We stopped keeping kosher when I became part of a blended family, he said. I ate everything. I remember having a ham sandwich on a piece of matzah on Passover. What made things even tougher was that his father and stepmother wanted us to find our own way. Some of his new relations tried to tip the scales. People on my stepmother's side of the family would give me literature, Van Leeuwen told the journal. When I was in the sixth grade, my uncle Fred, a wonderful man, gave me a comic book. Lots of mentions of Jesus on many pages. The future rabbi stood firm. Even then, I said, I am Jewish. I am happy being and staying Jewish. What his new relatives did and said was never a threat to his personal identity. I was very self-motivated to find my place in the universe through the lens of Judaism, Rev. Jason said. Talking about this brings up an affectionate memory. Return, uh, returning home for Thanksgiving during his freshman year was at the Jewish Theological Seminary, a joint program with Columbia University, and my Irish Catholic step-grandmother gives me a kiss and says, I am so proud of you. What he did not know then, she had prayed that he would convert to Christianity until she died. It was, he said, the weirdest thing about my step-grandmother of blessed memory. Even with all the mixed signals, Van Leeuwen thought about becoming a rabbi while still in high school. A trip to Israel helped him make the decision to enroll with JTS. The clincher came in 1986 at the funeral of his stepmother, who died of cancer when she was 49. My father was devastated, Rev. Jason said. All of us were. The funeral was in her church. My dad asked me, could you do something Jewish? 
So the future rabbi, 21 years old, stepped up to the altar of a Catholic church, put on a yarmulke, opened a sedure, and recited the memorial prayers in Hebrew and English. When he came down to down the altar steps, it seemed as if the whole church was in tears. The funeral director comes to me. He said he was so moved by what happened. He tells me he was born Jewish and converted to Catholicism when he was 14. I apparently awakened something in him. What did I do? All I did was read some stuff. 37 years later, he said the scene was a microcosm of how our family got together. If we can flourish and remain close through all of this, maybe there is hope for others. It was also a revelation for Van Leeuwen as he re realized the power of ritual and prayer. A piece of him was reawakened. Religion was a powerful tool for redemption, he concluded. This is what I have to do, the future rabbi told, told himself, and he has never looked back. After graduating from Lee College, which is now American Jewish University, he was ordained and earned a master's in Hebrew letters before coming back to Los Angeles in 1998. Married a born and bred Angelina, the father of two sons, said, and so we became more rooted here. His mother had moved to L.A. when Van Leeuwen was 11. They spoke by phone every week. Given his colorful past and larger-than-life personality, it might be a surprise that he leads a small community, but not to Reb Jason. I love this show for a couple of reasons, Reb Jason says. There is something to be said for small congregations, intimacy, when people walk in, they are welcome. I get to know everybody, and I get to do other things. I am also a, a hazan, some chaplaincy. I have done opera, acting. Composing is my major hobby. As the rabbi cantor of Temple B'nai Hagim, Rev. Jason calls himself the ranter. I am personally involved in everything. I tutor the kids, and how many and how, and how many congregations does that happen? Not common, but it's de rigueur here. When B'nai Ha'i emerged with North Hollywood's congregation Beth Meyer in 2017, both shuls were struggling. Rabbi Richard Flom of Beth Meyer, now retired, asked who will be the rabbi. You, said Reb Jason, I will be the Hazan. Why? People don't understand how much more fun it is to be a cantor than a rabbi. Fast takes with Rabbi Van Leeuwen. Journal. What superpower would you like to have? Leeuwen. Insightful listening. Journal. The best book you have ever read? Lewin. The book I am reading now is Genghis Khan and the Quest for God by Jack Weatherford. Journal. What do you do on your day off? Lewin. Run about three miles a day. Journal. What would you be if you weren't a rabbi? Lewin. David Bowie. That was Rabbis of L.A., Reb Jason's Long Road to Temple B'nai Hayim by Ari L. Noonan. Uh, for August 10th, 2023. All right, let's turn to the columnist section. This is called, Can Bibi Pull a Houdini? For the first time since he regained the Prime Minister's office several months ago, it appears that Benjamin Netanyahu has a plan. By Dan Schnur, August 9, 2023. For the first time since he regained the Prime Minister's office several months ago, it appears that Benjamin Netanyahu has a plan. It looks like the escape path for which he has been searching would run through Saudi Arabia. Until now, Netanyahu has seemed to simply be playing for time. The issue of judicial oversight, which he had largely ignored throughout his decades in public office, has become the bait that he has needed to keep the most conservative members of his coalition on board. But recognizing 
that Israeli public opinion is strongly against the reform plan, Netanyahu has been slow walking the policy changes through prolonged negotiations and incremental progress. The Prime Minister knows that continuing to push the extreme agenda of his party's base would almost certainly cost him his job before too long. So he has been trying to decelerate the process enough to find a way to become less dependent on the ultra-conservatives to maintain his governing majority. Up until now, his former center-right allies have demonstrated no interest whatsoever in working with him again. Centrist stalwarts like Benny Gantz and Yar Lapid and their followers are still angry about Netanyahu's efforts to avoid the various legal challenges he has faced. So Bibi has been stuck with the hard right as his only way to stay in power and adopt aspects of their agenda, most notably is the, court, the court overhaul as his own. <clears throat> but negotiations between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia over a sweeping Middle Eastern security agreement, which seems like a long shot, seemed like a long shot earlier this summer, have now become more serious. The prospect of the Saudis formally recognizing Israel's existence and establishing a public alliance against Iran would provide a level of safety and stability that the Jewish state has never before experienced in its 75 years of existence. Such a historic achievement would be of immense political benefit to Netanyahu. But in addition to significant additional military support from the U.S., the Saudis' other major precondition for such a deal would be measurable progress toward a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. A two-state solution is certainly a bridge too far on the current political landscape, but the deal would still require Israeli concessions that Netanyahu's current government coalition would never support, but that centrists who have rejected this overtures might consider. Imagine Netanyahu approaching his old partners to tell them that a momentous Middle Eastern peace was now possible, but only if they are willing to set aside their objections to his personal legal strategy for the time being. They still may want to see Netanyahu in court at some point in the future, but perhaps they would put aside for a breakthrough of this magnitude. As a sweetener, some of the controversial judicial reforms that have deeply divided the country could be weakened or withdrawn with a new majority coalition that wouldn't require the participation of the ultra-conservative cohort. There is no possible way to predict whether Netanyahu's erstwhile colleagues would be receptive to such an appeal. Their relationship with him has been badly damaged and may be beyond repair. Further, the odds against a Saudi deal are still considerable as all three countries' leaders uh, would be required to make difficult decisions over considerable domestic political opposition for this, to, for this to happen. But the prospect of such an agreement is tantalizing for the countries involved and for broader Middle Eastern and global interests. Israeli leaders who have dedicated their lives to the safety and security of the Jewish state would be forced to give serious consideration to such a trade-off. This is the typical, this is the type of environment in which Netanyahu has historically excelled and which requires the deal-making skills that have been the hallmark of his career. Bibi's platform, political antenna, which have served him exceedingly well in the past, seems to have led him down throughout the, this current controversy. He has repeatedly underestimated the depths of the anger against him and his governing partners, but the old magician might still have one more ace up his sleeve. That was Can Bibi Pull a Houdini by Dan Schnur, August 9, 2022.
2023. Dan Schnur is the U.S. politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses on politics, communications, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at danschnurpolitics.com. All right, here is one more. Religion as the new sport. While I regularly feel a special connection with observers of any faith, I have on occasion found it is easier to engage with someone who has no faith than with someone who has a strong one. By Morton Shapiro, August 9, 2023. My fellow sports fans know that, along with the joys and frustrations of cheering for our favorite teams, a shared love of sports can bring us closer to people from very different backgrounds than our own. I can be anywhere in this country or in the world and can usually break the ice by talking about sports, from the English Premier League in soccer to the Indian Premier League in cricket. A little knowledge does wonders in helping me connect with others. But those easy conversations in a car ride or in a pub may become fraught when the subject turns from sports to faith. When I meet another member of the tribe, of course, there is often an immediate bond. But for non-Jews, who knows? While I regularly feel a special connection with observers of any faith, I have occasion, on occasion found it is easier to engage with someone who has no faith than with someone who has a strong one. Shortly after I became president of Northwestern, I invited a dozen or so local clergy for lunch. They began by going around the room introducing themselves and, for the most part, talking about the work that their congregations were doing in Evanston. When it was my turn, I told them how impressed I was with their compassion and their service, but added that I was surprised that none of them had said anything about God. Perhaps, I said, we could use the remainder of our time together to chat about our religious journeys. That led to a meaningful exchange, and I felt a deep sense of community as we discussed what God means to each of us. I then raised something that had long been on my mind. Does there come a, time, a point where the appreciation of another faith is at odds with a passion for one's own? At first, several clergy members mentioned I have a bond with all believers, regardless of their particular re religion or in question. I followed up, saying that it, is, it isn't about a lack of respect for other faiths. It is about believing that your own faith is not only especially powerful, but that it is right. I do not believe that we should just pick a god, any god, do they, I asked. Silence ensued, until a Lutheran pastor spoke. He said that he was delighted that the president of a secular university was so eager to discuss religion. However, he continued, in his heart, he felt obligated to tell me that unless I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I was doomed to hell for an eternity. There was an audible gasp around the table, but I thanked him for his honesty and told him that while I respected his point of view, my faith is as unshakable as his. So where does that leave us? Don't you wish we had the same safe spaces to bring up religion as we do sports? Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could meet someone anywhere in the world and say honestly that Shabbat is even more important to me than my devoted devotion to the Bulls or Patriots? When I close my eyes and imagine it isn't John Lennon's world with no religion. Instead, it is a world where religion can be discussed as easily and as safely as anything else. That the admonition to leave faith outside of polite and conversation would be gone. That religion would be the new sport.
Not long ago, my prayer books changed the final version of the Kaddish prayer, adding seven words in brackets. May the one who creates peace on high bring peace to us and to all Israel and to all who dwell on earth. When I first read this, I thought the addition was clumsy and ignored it. After all, some clergy and congregants included it and some do not, leading to a certain awkwardness during the service. But now I realize that if we are ever to truly embrace people of other faiths, it's not a bad idea to begin by including them in our own prayers. That was Religion as the New Sport by Morton Shapiro, August 9, 2023. Morton Shapiro is the former president of Williams College and Northwestern University. His most recent book with Gary Saul Morrison is Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.